Well, I would love to invite you to take your Bibles, if you have one handy there. Turn with me to the book of Exodus as we continue our study through the Ten Commandments. And if you like to queue up for where we're heading next, we will also be going to Matthew 5 in short order. And so you might have your finger there in that text as well. Exodus 20. And then Matthew 5, and of course, as always, the study sheet in your bulletin I know will be a help to you. Uh, A number of references we're going to make here this morning. Continuing our study, of course, looking at the Ten Commandments. My goodness sakes, we've been doing this now for six weeks. We come today to the Seventh Commandment. Some of you will remember the day that the Seventh Commandment made the news. It was back in 1976. Remember that? Uh huh. Some of you remember well 1976. Those were the Jimmy Carter days. And uh, Jimmy Carter, of course, running for president, made big news because he agreed to be interviewed by a sketchy magazine. I'll leave it at that. And in the magazine uh, interview, he was asked if he had ever committed adultery. Commandment number seven. Yep, you know, he really was. And, of course, Jimmy Carter, being who he was, he, he answered the question. Now, he gave a pretty good paragraph, but among the things that he said, this little line, and, of course, people chatted it up uh, for a long time, politics and religion, both sides. He said this, I have committed adultery in my heart many times. Now, there were those, of course, in politics who discussed, uh, well, the appropriateness of discussing the Word of God in sketchy magazines. Uh, one of the folks said that. I can't believe we're living to see the day when the Bible's discussed in that magazine. Well, all right. Uh, others wondered if that was saying too much. After all, appropriate decorum is appropriate for public officials. We've come a long ways, of course, since then in a lot of areas. <laughs> But Jimmy Carter, um, my goodness, went on to become a president and commented on the Seventh Commandment. Still news this many years later. So what do you do with the Seventh Commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. What do you do with that? How do you interact with that? We're going to talk today about the Seventh Commandment, uh, hopefully in a fashion that's both appropriate to the setting and direct. Um, to skirt the issues too many uh, ways would not be helpful to us. But I also think we want to follow the footsteps of Jesus who looked not only at the physical element involved, like don't do that, but he also looked at the heart of God, and that's our goal in this series, rediscovering God's heart in the Ten Commandments. Jesus helps us with that. He helps us to see what the point was the whole time. And so what I want to do is to read, again, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, and then we'll go to Matthew 5. I want to pray together first that God would help us, because as we talk about these things, it's, let me just say it this way, it's really easy to dodge these issues. It's really easy to look at other people and say, look what they did. I would never do that. Those are bad people. Can you imagine? All kinds of ways that we look across the room and say, those people, and we avoid looking at ourselves. We don't want to do that today. So I'd like to pray for us that God would help us to rightly honor his word. So join me, please. Father, we come, as always, seeking your help in the preaching of your word. We ask our Father that you would search each one of us, our hearts, our behavior, our affections, and hold up the mirror of the word of God to us. 
not that only that we would look into it, but that we would, as James tells us to do, we would look into it and allow ourselves to be changed as you work in us. Now, Father, I pray as well that your word would be to us as a hammer, breaking up those hard places in our hearts, maybe areas that we excuse in ourselves, areas in which we judge inappropriately other people. Uh, Father, break up those hard places in our hearts. And as you do that, point us to Jesus. Point us to Jesus. We need your help in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. I want to keep reading this text over and over, though we'll deal with just a part of it. God's word. Read this. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And then I'm going to turn over to Matthew 5. Spanning the centuries, we come to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus giving commentary on Exodus 20. I read in verse 27. To 30, this little paragraph. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And I see that as a, as a unit, those three verses. Wow. 
Well, on your study sheet now, you see some words of review, and I would encourage you to take the time to look at those. And then another section that, stepping from these portions of Scripture that I read, that I, I want to comment on what historically now, I didn't make this up, theologians have spoken about, codified if you will, three ways that God uses his law, the three uses of the law. And I find this especially helpful as we come today to the seventh commandment. So uh, these come from, from theologians down through the ages, but three uses, and I, I, I think they're here for our, for our good. So we would say this, God uses his law moral law in particular is what I'm thinking of here. First of all, to reflect what God is like, that is, he is holy and righteous and good and perfect. And at the same time, the law points out in great contrast what we are like. That is, we're not like that. We are not perfect. We are wholly different holy, broken people, sinful people. So we see what God is like in the law and we see what we are like because the, the word of God is like a mirror that you hold up and you look into it kind of like a kid after a trip to McDonald's. You hold them up and you look in the mirror and say, see, this is what happens with too much ketchup. And you, you know the story. And that's what the word of God does for us. It, you hold it up and you look into it. And you go, oh my, I am more broken than maybe I thought. So God's word does this for us. Now, I, I, I want to I pause here and say this. As we deal with this commandment and other commandments and other thou shalt and thou shalt nots. Oh, dear people, listen, please. The intent here, as this first use of the law underscores, is not simply to break you down and crush you. But, but listen, it is that. It is that the law of God is intended to crush in you any element of self-righteousness that is left. That is a severe mercy to use C.S. Lewis's words. It is a severe mercy because every one of us has a little voice in our heads. Now you may think, oh, I know I listen to voices. No, 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 no. It's a different little voice. There's a little voice in your head. It's in every one of us that seeks to, that seeks to find in ourselves a little bit of righteousness. A little bit. I mean, even a little bit. Oh, okay, 5%. So I need Jesus for the other 95%, but, but come on, give me 5%. And there's a little voice in you. And it's true. As we look at all the commandments, we end up looking at some of these and go, well, I haven't broken that one. Okay, completely. I mean, or I kept it. I've kept it for part of my life. I mean, I've, I've, done, I've done okay. We're seeking a little bit of righteousness. And the word of God comes along and says, none. You have none. Now, if it only left us there, we would be in despair. But God's word never breaks us down just to leave us in the dust. No, the severe mercy of God then points us to Christ. And listen, if you think you've got some self-righteousness, you will not value Christ very much. You will only value Christ as much as you think you need him, which is why some people find it very hard to, to appreciate and love Christ is you don't think you need him very much. I mean, after all, look at you. Right. But if you are utterly broken by the law of God, you see it correctly. See, 
And you, you, you look at the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, and you agree. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. Could together become unprofitable. And then he works right through your tongue and your thoughts, everything about you. And you say, oh, God, that is true of me. Okay, then that severe mercy does its work and it takes you to Jesus who cleans you up and in whom you find identity, purpose and meaning. Okay, we understand this. That's the first use of the law. Shows us what God is like, shows us what we're like. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Galatians 3, 24. The law is a schoolmaster, a tutor who leads us to Christ. Second use of the law, to restrain evil. It restrains evil. It draws a line in the sand. It says, don't cross it. It serves as a warning. It's a notice of possible human punishment, if it's whatever it is, is against a human law, and you break it. And it warns of certain divine judgment. Uh, We're familiar with this, I think, just in our everyday life, because to some extent, notice my qualification, to some extent, speed limit signs do this for you. Right? So you're driving down the road, and the the speed limit sign says 35, and how fast do you go? 40. I know. Of course, you do. So it's within reason. You get on the freeway, and it says 60, and you go... A little faster, right? But it, I'm saying it. you go to Furcrest, and it says 25. 25. See, you, you, you are veterans. You're veterans. Veterans of the area. I know. You're exactly right. Ah, you, got, you know where to, where to fudge the law. Yes, you Oh, terrible. Wretched man that I am. <laughs> wow. But it's a, it's, a, it's a line. It's a boundary, right? Where you go, okay, I should. Five over means that. Right? So we understand the law as a warning sign, just even in that little way. Uh, God's law does the same thing. It says, don't do this. And if you do, and it's against human laws, you could get in trouble. And if it's against God's law, oh dear, he sees. And there could be consequences there too. Certain divine judgment. Now, third, then, use of the law teaches us what is pleasing to God. An undervalued uh, element here. The law teaches, now listen, redeemed people. That's the little fill-in. Redeemed. Redeemed people. The law is... We've said it over and over again as we study the Ten Commandments. The law, the Ten Commandments, or the whole law of God is not there so that if you obey it well, you'll go to heaven. Because really, you can't obey it well. Nobody does 100% from the time they're born to the time they die. Nobody does. You can't. Right? You're a human person. You have a sin nature, so you just can't do it. The law teaches redeemed people how to live. We saw that in the Ten Commandments on our first study as Exodus 20 begins. And God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. I brought you out. I redeemed you. I brought you out of the land of, of, of Egypt, the land of slavery. So it's speaking to redeemed people to say, here's how to live and please me. Now, now and then people, folks, sorry, New Testament folks. They look at the Bible and they say, well, I'm a New Testament person, so I'm under the law of Christ. Not under, yes, but just listen, because you're under the law of Christ doesn't mean you can lie, steal, and cheat with the best of them. Okay? No, it's not about that. So, so belonging to Jesus does not say, well, I get a pass on this. Why are we even studying the Ten Commandments? I don't have to do those anymore. Oh, friend, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. Yes, true, but not from our obligation to obey it. Think on these things, please. Now, we've read together uh, Exodus 20. We saw that seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And we've, we've looked then at the words of Jesus. And I want to come to this next section. And I'm going to talk about the title of it in just a, a little bit. 
But commandment number seven, I want to talk about this under the headings that you see here in front of you. Uh, Last week we noted that there is some discussion about how to translate the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder or thou shalt not kill. There's no discussion, no quarreling about how to translate the seventh. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Is that clear? Well, in its translation element, absolutely. In its application, and what do you mean by that? We seek ambiguity. We seek, we seek to, to, to widen just a bit. So you don't mean by that this, or you don't mean by that this. This is talking about a physical behavior of mine that I ought not do. It's surely not talking about things I would look at. Or is it? So I've given you a sentence here. I want to state the obvious, even as we follow the words of Jesus and broaden this, our understanding of the seventh commandment, I I would not want to, to, to miss stating the obvious. And so I put here, listen carefully, sexual behavior outside of marriage between a husband and wife is in fact sinful. Don't do it. Okay, did you did we hear this? I I worded this as sexual behavior because I want to include here a broader category than we might seek to narrow it down to adultery. You mean this, right? And Jesus would come along and say, okay, how about if you go a little bit more sexual behavior? Specifically, we'll talk more detailed sexual behavior outside of marriage between a husband and wife is sinful. Don't do it. If you're thinking about doing something like that, don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, those of you who have been down that path on one side or the other know the pain and heartache that inevitably explodes into a home when someone steps outside God's boundary in that area. I don't have to tell you, you know. Now, As we take a look at the words of Jesus now, you stay with me here as we go back to the book of Matthew, probably have it there in front of you. Jesus identifies what God had in mind the whole time. So 10 commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus, Jesus is not raising the bar. He's clarifying the heart of God. He is saying, this is what God had in mind the entire time in giving the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 is repetition in Deuteronomy. This is what God had in mind. Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already done it, is already guilty of adultery in his own heart. Jimmy Carter was right. For all the flack he took over his words, he was right. Uh, By saying, yes, actually, I've broken that commandment. If not physically, in the intent of my heart. He was correct. Now, Jesus then, as you see on your study sheet here, he identifies what God had in mind the whole time. Purity of life, absolutely. And purity of heart. Not even a hint. Not even a look. And in verses 29 and 30, those difficult verses, much debated, people say, well, you know, come on, you don't take that literally. Well, literally, yes, as a figure of speech, he meant it as a figure of speech. He meant to communicate something very clearly here. And I believe Jesus is calling for decisive action on our part. He's saying, hey, come on. Um, 
do if, if, if it takes something drastic for you to knock that off, then maybe you need to do something drastic. Maybe you now think about this in this context. Jesus is following verse 27 and 28. If your right eye causes you to sin, wow, look at this. So if Jesus is meaning for you to start chopping off body parts that cause you to sin, what body parts are now going to go? Well, our hands are gone. My feet run rapidly to evil, uh, the writer to Proverbs would say. So those are gone. My, my heart is in deep trouble. It's gone. My mouth, I sin with my mouth. You see where this is going. Jesus has just said, you know what? It's not just what you do with your body. It's what you do with your heart. Now, that's, that's in the context where he then says, do, you know, take drastic action. And I, I, I don't want to backpedal too far. I understand you, you understand with me when Jesus says, cut it off and throw it from you. He's, he's not saying cut it off and throw it. He's saying, do some, if you have to do something drastic to, to knock it off or to obey me, you might want to consider that. And I give you two, other, two verses to think about. Or two texts. One is 1 Corinthians 9. I'll give you the references right here. This is where Jesus, uh, sorry, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I buffet my body and I make it my slave, lest after I have preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. I buffet my body. That is, my bodily appetites do not control me. And this is a significant call, by the way, for all of us. We live in the first world, first world problems, people say. We live in a pampered society, and we love it so. We've talked about this before. The crisis we have when the salon is closed. Oh, no, I cannot get the pedicure I had planned. Whatever shall I do? Terrible stuff happens to us in the, when our pampering is, is interrupted. Learning to, learning to say no to our bodily appetites, of which there are many. That's, that's historically one of the outcomes of things like fasting, uh, giving up something for Lent, as some have done, some do. It's one of those possible benefits of saying, you know, in this area, it would do me some good to learn a little bit of self-discipline. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind my body that it doesn't own me, and I'm going to say no to that. I was reflecting on this. Actually, Dave Potter and I were reflecting on this as we were on a backpack trip recently with some young guys. We were going up a hill. We were just talking about this. We did 21 miles and carrying packs and dr driving not only others on, but driving ourselves on. And we were reflecting on the benefit of saying, hey, the muscles burn a little bit. We must stop immediately, right? No, 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 no. I'm not saying we're hurting ourselves, but you know what? Go. Come on. Up the hill, young man. You can do it. I was talking to myself. You can do this. <laughs> one foot in front of the other. One of, one of my uh, acts of desperation, count 50 steps, stop for a breath. 50 more, stop for a breath. That's what you do, but you keep going. And apart from such acts of discipline, there are a lot of other areas in our lives where it would, we would do well to be reminded, every one of us, you know, when, I, when my body screams to me in some area, I do not have to do what it wants. 
I think we would all benefit from a bit of this. And that's kind of what's going on here. Paul says, I buffet my body. I make it my slave lest, because if I give in to what my body wants all the time, I will before long run out of gas. Similarly, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, talking about moral issues again, the Apostle Paul says we should know how to control this vessel that God has given. Okay, calls for a little bit of discipline. Some people, that's getting up in the morning at 4.30 or whatever the thing. Get up. Get up. I can get up. Yes, you can get up. I, you can. You actually can. You set an alarm. You get up. A little bit of discipline is good for us. Now, moving on, if you turn the page, the seventh commandment then is not only about refraining from illicit sexual behavior. It is that. But it is then, according to Jesus, about holiness in our thoughts, our affections, our dreams, our loyalties, and our, our speech. What do I mean by our speech? I'm saying all of this comes under the purview of God. All of it comes under his, under his sight. Think about honoring marriage. Think about honoring our husband or our wife. It isn't only by refraining from illicit sexual behavior. It's about all kinds of other things. When I think about our speech, a little clarification there. I've been around long enough to have been in settings where groups of men or groups of women in those lazy times of conversation end up complaining about their spouses. You ever been in those little conversations where a group of guys will get together and say, you know, women, you can't, we're doing other stuff. We're not just getting together to do that. But we quickly, ah, women, you can't live with them. You can't live without them. Yeah, I know. My wife, you know what she did? And before long, mm -mm -mm. and women do the same thing. My husband, men, they just sit there. They do. They just sit there. If I could only get them. It's like, you know what? So, so on the one hand, you want to pat yourself on the back for honoring your marriage, right? At least I would never commit adultery. Uh-huh. But can you really say you're honoring your marriage when you thrash them in public? And I'm not so sure that all of us who pat ourselves so quickly on the back are as guiltless as we would like to think that kind of conversation of course has no place in the body of Christ Christian men ought not to be doing that meh, 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 about our wives and Christian ladies ought not to be doing that either has no place in the family of God now I say here when we, we love to be reductionists lowering redefining God's command so we can obey it and I've, I, I, I want to get specific here how do we what do you mean by that what do you mean reductionist what do you mean lowering the bar here are some phrases I hope would never come out of your mouth but they could for example looking at the words of Jesus whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent what does it really mean to look do you mean look or do you mean gaze do you mean look or study do you mean look once or look twice how long can the look be you see what I'm doing I'm trying to give myself enough room to justify myself to say, well, it, clearly I'm in the I'm in the clear then I wasn't really looking <laughs> really, really. I'm not really lusting. I'm only appreciating beauty. God's creation. God makes beautiful things and I would be remiss if I did not appreciate what God made. No, no, no. There's no desire in my, you know, stop already. Come on. Come on. Would Jesus give you the pass that you're giving yourself? Would he say, yes, I know your heart and you're right. Was that what he'd say? Hmm. 
This isn't just one-sided, isn't it? Sometimes we talk about looking with lust, and Jesus uses the example of a man looking at a woman with lustful intent. Jesus, as well, could have said things about women, because looking with desire or desiring what God has not given you is not only something men do. It's something women do, too. You know that? Maybe not in the same way, maybe not with the same uh, elements that we're staring at or longing for, but, but women do it too. If only I had a husband so, who was so sensitive or so caring or helped around the house. Finally, really. So I have here, if my husband actually looked like that, I use the physical element here because I'm cueing it off of Genesis 39. Remember the story in Genesis 39? This wonderful young lady named Potiphar's wife had a slave in the house named Joseph, Joe, Joey, maybe she called him, I don't know, but the text says he was a fine young man, quite handsome, good to look at, he was ripped, he had a good six pack, I don't know what the deal was, but Potiphar's wife noticed this fine young man working around the house, and it says, she looked at him with desire, so men aren't the only ones, Potiphar's wife, surely, and ladies, even today, Potiphar's wife looked at Joseph with desire. The fourth one, a person who might say, oh, yes, I honor my marriage. I would never commit adultery. I'd never do what those people do. Those, you know, I'm not going to judge them, but you know, but you know, my husband or wife is such a, what fits in the blank here? If you look under the key, I left it blank, too. May I, may I urge you not to fill it in, all right? Lest the person to whom you're married, if you're married, finds your notes and says, really? Uh, so don't fill it in. Just put a little X there, and you know what I mean. Um, I, my, my point is this, that sometimes people, maybe who have not committed actual adultery and thus dishonored their marriage, Maybe they dishonor their marriage and break the seventh commandment in a whole different way. I want to stay on this for a minute. Stay on this for a minute. Uh, I put this, all these comments under a heading. You, I referenced that a bit ago. Go back and look at that. My question is, is what exactly did you promise? What exactly did you promise? And I'm speaking here about marriage. And those of you who are married or have been married, used to be married, or someday hope to be married, when people get married, typically they promise, listen to me, they promise more than sexual fidelity. Uh, not less, but you promised more. You did. You did. I know you did. Because I've never seen marriage vows that just said, that just say, I promise sexual fidelity. That's it. Now, typically we promise things like, oh, I don't know love, honor, and cherish, or something like that in nice poetic speech. Love, honor, and cherish. So let me ask you, how do you do with that? How do you do with that? Could you say, could you say that you've kept those promises since the day you got married? Love, I've always loved. I've always honored. Always. Always cherished. Well, have you? And I find it... I find it far too easy. Now, don't misunderstand me with my words. I find it far too easy for people when they speak about marriage promises to say, I would never break my marriage vows, meaning adultery. But they leave out all the other vows that they've probably handily broken numerous times. <sighs> Which promises do you mean? Have you kept them all, friend? Friend? 
Have you? For how many days of the years you've been married? I've always honored. I've always cherished. I've always loved with a self-sacrificial, self-dying love. Really, Jay? Tell me about that. Now, if you look down uh, under that implications and response, there are a couple of things I want to spend a moment on. We've mentioned the first one already. The second little bullet point there is a reminder of one of the rules of Bible interpretation that we've addressed a couple of times. When something is prohibited in the Bible, the opposite is encouraged. So when, when the Ten Commandments say don't commit adultery, it's not only saying don't commit the physical act of adultery. Yes, it is saying that. It's, it's, I'm saying it's not only that. Jesus helps us understand that more fully in saying it's about your thoughts as well. But I would also go so far as to say that the seventh commandment isn't just about prohibiting things. It's asking you, if you're married, do you, do you actually still today cherish the person to whom you're married? And do you act like it? And I, I've given you two paragraphs here. I'm going to flesh this out in perhaps painful ways. But all of it leads us to Jesus. So don't fear Marriages, in addition to acts of infidelity, marriages can also be damaged by the following. And I'm going to read this out loud because you know what? As often as I hear about struggles to get over infidelity, I hear about these things more. These things make break. These things break marriages, too. OK. Ungratefulness. Constant busyness, gone all the time, emotionally, physically, careless words, lack of affection, disrespect, threats, anger, nagging. And by the way, it isn't just women who nag. Men nag too. Negativity, financial foolishness, selfishness, laziness, control issues, lack of forgiveness. And I put the little ellipsis, the three dots there to say, and the list goes on. Maybe I haven't mentioned your particular area where you mess it up. Maybe you're going, oh, good. He didn't mention me because you've got all those down, apparently. No, marriages are broken by these things, too. So before you pat yourself on the back too much to say, oh, I would never I would never break my marriage like that. Well, let me just ask you about those. How are you doing with that? Maybe you wouldn't break marriage that way. You're breaking it pretty handily in other areas by a complaining, ungrateful spirit. How about that? You can sink that ship with that torpedo, too. Now, I go to the other side by way of encouragement. Marriages are built up by these things. Gratefulness, time together, appropriate affection, trust, truthfulness, affirmation, self-sacrifice, and self-denial. Genuine apologies, true forgiveness, graciousness, kind words, partnership, acceptance, and so on. Marriages are built up with those things. And all of this points us to Jesus in the gospel. How so? It's like this. Listen, if you hear a sermon like this and you end up saying in your heart of hearts, I will try harder. I'm going to do better. You missed my point. You missed it. Here's why. On your best day, you're not nearly that good. And apart from Christ, you have no chance of hitting a home run on those things. Apart from Jesus, you can't live like that. You're not nearly that nice. You're more messed up than that. You need Jesus for this. 
Okay? So before you look at that list and say, you know, actually, okay, stop it already. No. You need Jesus. And any good coming out of your, out of your heart and out of your words and in your behavior, it's all because Jesus is at work in you. Okay, so before you get all high and mighty about, yeah, I've kind of got this. You're not nearly that great to live with, probably. Uh, you need Christ. You need Christ. You do. Every morning you need to wake up and say, God, help me, because otherwise I'm going to blow it. And you run to him every single day. Say, dear God, live your life through me. Shape my words. Control me. Help me, oh God. Restrain my lips from saying stupid things. Turn my heart back from wanting what you haven't given me. God, help me today. You need to pray like that every single day. You do. Because you need Christ more than you know. Now, one of the many books on marriage I've referred to before, in fact, too recently for me to mention it again, but, you know, it's all right. Um, This cute little book, it's called When Sinners Say I Do. I, I really like it. It's a reminder to us that when you got married, you married a sinner. And the person you married probably married an even bigger one. So marriage is made up of two people who are broken, who are at their very core. Come on, you know it's true of you. At your very core, self-interested first. Sometimes, in fact, if you admitted it, you're kind because you want something back. That's called self-interest. I'm nice to you because I'm hoping. Well, he starts off here on the back. Marriage is the union of two people who arrive at the altar toting some surprisingly large luggage we all have baggage we walk into a marriage all of our messes from the past all our bad decisions all the people who've hurt us and we haven't let go of it all the ways in which we saw bad things modeled in our home of origin and we carry it all into our marriage and drop them here we go it's what marriage is and this little book is a reminder that we need the help of God for two people with a lot of baggage to live happily ever after little paragraph I've read to you before I read it again it's the confession of this writer and on what basis Mr. Harvey do you write a book on marriage what you got this all figured out right now he says this about himself I have control issues add to that I love to be right I tend to see other people's opinions as inferior I hate being wrong who do I sound like? Careful, careful. It better say you. Right? What, peop- what other people think about me sometimes determines what I do. I worry about problems I can't solve. You'll find out a lot more about my particular package of mixed up motivations throughout this book. But I will vouch for this. The more you get to know me, the more you will value my wife. And that's where he goes in this book. That's where he goes in this book. When sinners say I do, oh my goodness, God's grace for my spouse to put up with me God's grace for me to put up with everybody else who steps on my toes too my, my whole point is this um, a lesson from the humble campfire okay my final little note this is the deal this, this little illustration might help you a couple weeks ago camping backpacking yep we had one night in the campground where we could have a fire I love fires campfires I actually love fires too but that's a whole other story uh, campfires campfires If you've been around a campfire, you know that campfires are a lot of work. If you don't tend them constantly, they go out. You have to keep feeding them if you want to have a campfire work. If you ignore it for too long and the wind blows, that campfire gets out of control and lights a whole forest on fire. There's great power in that little campfire, but you've got to tend it. You've got to tend it carefully. You do. You've got to feed it. You've got to give it oxygen. It's got to have room to breathe or it's going to go out. 
So a good Boy Scout or Girl Scout who knows how to make fires, there's a certain science to piling wood on there at the right pace and making sure there's room for everybody there to breathe. So you've got to feed it or else you won't have a fire. Sometimes people neglect a fire in a marriage. They can't imagine why it goes out. You step back. Now, at the same time, the next morning, we were due to leave. You've got you to make sure the campfire's out, right? So we, instead of throwing dirt on it, we went and got water. There's a spigot up there. We brought back water, cup after cup of water. We sprinkled cold water all over the fire. You know what happens when you do that? Fire goes out. And I want you to hear this. There's a lot of ways to put a fire out. Committing adultery is one. That's a big one. There's a lot of other ways people put the fire out, too. And that's what I'm after today, really, is not just to say, don't commit adultery. I did say that, and I wouldn't want to minimize that at all. But I also don't want to send us all out saying, because I haven't sinned in that particular way, I'm good today. Because the seventh commandment is more than that. It's more than that. Have you kept your promises? Are you keeping your promises? There's more than one way to put a fire out. And if you find yourself in that third little bullet point, working your way through that list, and it would be true of you that that's characterizing your heart, you, need, you have some repenting to do. You do. And prayer that God would help you day by day to love the way he calls you to. I want to pray for us. Would you stand with me, please, as we do that? Our Father, you spoke those words on the mountain to Moses, words for his good and words for our good. In that list of commandments, you said you shall not commit adultery. Keep your promises. You're a promise-keeping God. You, would, you intend that we would, we would do that. We would keep our promises when we make them. And our Father, you meant by that certainly the actions of our bodies, but you also meant the affections of our heart, the look of our eyes, desires, and positively things that we ought to do to feed a marriage that you might have put us in. Father, together as a congregation, we come at this from a lot of different ways. Some of us married, some of us not. Some of us hoping to be or hoping to be again. Now, Father, wherever we're at, we need Jesus. We do. We need Christ. Point us to him today. Thank you for Christ. Crucified, risen, coming again. And we pray with gratefulness in his name. Amen. Amen.